Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thank you so much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Diane Rayor about Sappho. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate the opportunity to be inter- uh, interviewed by you. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, so could you give us some background information about yourself uh, yes, thank you. I'm Professor Emerita of Classics at uh, Grand Valley State University in Michigan in the United States, and I've been a translator uh, originally of Sappho since 1978, so I've been at this for a while, and I translated the Homeric hymns and uh, a couple tragedies, Medea and Antigone, which I'm pretty sure have been performed in Australia from my translations. I'm currently working on translating Euripides' Helen and Hecuba. Uh, I actually have the translations done and I'm just uh, working on the whole book process. But basically I'm interested in interesting and active women ancient and now. All right, so what was it that inspired you to study Sappho? Uh, the beauty of her Greek. Uh, the Greek is just so vivid and also, of course, that it's women-centered and that it was all performed. And so all of that really interested me because the fragmentary pieces that remain give us glimpses into a woman-centered life and a woman's voice from ancient Greece that we otherwise completely lack. In the whole body of Sappho's work, which was most famous for homoerotic desire, the fragments about passion are most likely directed toward women. And the, the poems themselves make that clear in the Greek, and I tried my best always to translate the gender, the desire, the sexuality as clearly as I can in the English. So that's what really inspired me with Sappho. It's so beautiful. (laughs) Now, is there much known about Sappho's um, early childhood life? Not really. Uh, There's almost nothing. There's a poem that's talking about her mother, how her mother used to say that this particular kind of hairband was better for a woman with light-colored hair rather than dark-colored hair. And and it also is addressed to, to her daughter. So there really isn't much about early life. So do we know very much about her family and friends? That we do know, because most of what we know we get from 
the fragmentary remains of her poetry itself. And so in those poems, her brothers, her three brothers are mentioned, her daughter Cleus is mentioned, and lots and lots of women's names. So she talks uh, about specific women, Anactoria, Attis, uh, Gongula. So lots of different women that uh, clearly were women in her audience at the time. Um, and they uh, were, they're referred to as friends, uh, perhaps as lovers. It's, you can't really tell because it's all song. And as we know, songs aren't always strictly autobiographical. It, it, although the poetry seems very intimate, like it's uh, a diary or a letter, it all was performed with Sappho strumming on the lyre and uh, performing these, singing these before an audience. And so that's where we can't, you know, tell exactly everything that's going on. But we do have this information about uh, brothers, daughter, mother, and lots of other women. We have nothing about father or husband, although Sappho would have been married because women would have been married. But uh, the only record of her husband's name is actually a sexual joke, the, uh, the little prick from the Isle of Man. So clearly not a real husband's name. And in the ancient testimonies, her father is given like five different possible names. So clearly he wasn't mentioned in her original poetry either. Well, I think that says a lot in itself, doesn't it? Um, the the joking name for him, it's, you can read a lot yes. into that, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, so what was Sappho's poetic output? Well, in, so Sappho lived about 600 BCE and as I said, she performed everything with her lyre, the stringed instrument. And then centuries later, we know that there were nine scrolls of her poetry that survived in the Hellenistic period. And so those scrolls of papyrus uh, would have been about 10,000 lines of poetry. And we have maybe 700 lines of poetry that survives. So we only have a really small amount of her poetry that survives today. But we do know that she was hugely influence, influential in her time and really ever after. She highly influenced the Roman poets. And so her work was passed on and she almost certainly would have written them originally and people would have heard her performances and then done cover songs of her poetry. So that would have continued. Uh, and uh, so we only have a little bit of what she performed then. And of course, none of the music, but we do have some of the poetry and some of it is substantial, even though much of it is very fragmentary. 
So are there any of her complete works that survived? Well, the poem that sometimes is called The Hymn to Aphrodite is certainly complete, and some of the other ones may be complete, but we just don't know. Uh, But as I, I mentioned, there are definitely some substantial ones, and there's lots of small beauties. In my book, I uh, that the revised edition came out uh, this past February, I translate every single word that survives. I used a very new Greek edition from 2021, and every single word, line, fragment that has a word that can be translated, I translate it. So it's all there. And of course, my hope is that more continues to be found and can just be slotted into what we have now. And also that the little bits and pieces that I translated maybe will continue to influence modern poets to use a little bit of Sappho here and there. Because uh, poets have always taken the little Sappho and incorporated that into their own poetry from the time of the Roman poet Catullus on. Oh, that's that's fantastic that you've done that. Uh, would you like to, to read out all or, or part of this work for us? Well, I'd love to read all of it, but that would take too long. Um, I will read one now and uh, perhaps some more as we continue, depending on time. But uh, if someone would like to hear them all uh, at cambridge.org slash Sappho, Cambridge has generously uh, had a recording done, a professional recording, and, and all of them are freely available there for anyone to download and listen to. And it does make a difference to both see them on the page and hear them aloud. But the one that I'd like to read now is poem number 16. Some say an army of horsemen, others say foot soldiers, still others say a fleet is the most beautiful thing on the black earth. I say it is whatever one loves. Everyone can understand this. Consider that Helen, far surpassing the beauty of mortals, left behind the best man of all to sail away to Troy. She remembered neither daughter nor dear parents as Aphrodite led her away. This reminds me now of absent Anactoria. I would rather see her lovely step and the radiant sparkle of her face than all the war chariots in Lydia and soldiers battling in arms. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) The reason I wanted to read this one in particular is because this, she presents such a strong argument and she's really arguing against Homer and other male poets who put the emphasis on that Helen was the destructive force in the whole Trojan War and blames Helen, and Helen is always the object of male desire. Here, Sappho says explicitly, 
whatever we think is the most beautiful thing of all, that's what we love. That's what we consider best. So whether that's war or power or a particular person, and then it makes Helen the desiring subject. She's the one who decided to leave for what she considered best. And then Sappho makes herself the desiring subject here by saying she wants her absent Anactoria more than anything. And so, ah, <laughs> that's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, who do you think that her poetry was written for? Well, it would have been written for her home audiences on the island of Lesbos, um, either in the capital in Mytilene or in other places. And we know this because she specifically says so in one of her songs. She says, now I will sing this beautifully to delight my female companions. So we know that she was singing for other women, perhaps in small groups. We also know that she would be performing for larger audiences, mixed sexed at festivals. One of her poems is clearly meant to be performed at a specific festival located on the island of Lesbos. And uh, she has marriage songs and she knows that her poetry will be lasting. She says, someone in another time will remember us. And so, although her poetry was all performed at home for people who knew her, she was expecting it to last. That's quite incredible. And yeah, she probably wouldn't have imagined how long it would have lasted and how popular it'd be and how accessible it would be, you know, worldwide. Yes. I mean, that that wouldn't have, you know, if nobody would have been able to imagine that back then. So it is, it is quite incredible, isn't it, that she had that foresight? Yes, and it seems so modern. Her language, I mean, obviously, you know, when it's referring to like chariots or whatever, but the the sentiment, the expression in the Greek is so vivid and modern. And so I tried to recreate that in my translation. Hmm. So what would you say that Sappho's philosophy on life was? I really appreciate this question because this is not something I had thought about before. And so when you sent me this question, it, it, it made me really think, okay, so what is Sappho's philosophy? And after kind of pondering it, what I came up with is that there's a joy and beauty in connections, in relationships, in community, in remembering, and with love. It, it is a pattern of finding joy and beauty, and beauty comes up in a lot of poems. Um, for example, let me read just a little bit from a poem that was actually discovered in 2004 
And it, it says, reveal the beautiful gifts of the violet-robed muses girls, dancing to the song-loving voice of the sweet-toned lyres. My skin was delicate before, but now old age claims it. My hair turned from black to white. My spirit has grown heavier. Knees buckle that once could dance light as fawns. I often groan, but what can I do? It's impossible for humans not to age. For they say, pierced by love, rosy-armed dawn went to the ends of earth, holding to Thonus, beautiful and young. But in time, gray old age seized him, even with a deathless wife. Yet I love the finer things. Know that passion for the light of life has also granted me brilliance and beauty. And so she's specifically saying that the beauty of performing is not the same as the beauty of the young Tithonus that the goddess Dawn fell in love with, because humans age and there's no way around that. But even so, the passion for the light of life grants brilliance and beauty. So a life of an active life richly lived in the arts or whatever it is, also brings a kind of beautifulness, this kind of beauty and joy. And that also is clear in an, another poem of hers where, and do I have time for a little bit of another poem? Yeah, sure, we do. Okay, great. Because this one, uh, where some people characterize Sappho's love songs as almost pathologically focused on loss and suffering. I mean, there's even the the expression suffering Sappho, right? Um, I say that her vision of love and loss are positive and even joyous. They're not pathological because we have in poem 94, there's a pattern of insight with this double meaning in one word that in Greek is the verb pasco, where we get the word pathos from. So suffering, or like in sympathy with suffering, suffering together. But in the Greek, it means both suffer and experience, right? So therefore I'm alive. And we see this double meaning here in this poem where it starts with one woman saying, I've, I simply wish to die. Weeping, she left me and told me this too. We've suffered terribly, Sappho. I leave you against my will. I answered, go happily and remember me. You know how we cared for you. If not, let me remind you of the lovely times we shared. And so, the woman says, we're suffering, and she responds, we're experiencing. And it's the same verb in the Greek. We shared lovely times. And notice that it's also a communal thing, because it's not just between Sappho and this other woman who's leaving. It's, she recalls a community of women 
we shared this, not just you and me, but this whole community. And then it goes through all these beautiful things that we shared together, including on soft beds, delicate, you quenched your desire. And so, you know, it's it's very clear what this is about, that this is very erotic, but it's also performed in the communal venue of performance, right? Sappho shares with her audiences this human condition of suffering and experiencing eros, this passion, this love, longing and desire and loss. They're all opportunities for song, both then and, of course, now. Yeah, they, they certainly are. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's one thing that hasn't changed much throughout the centuries, <laughs> <No>. has it? <laughs> so what were the circumstances surrounding Sappho's death? Well, that's something we actually don't know because we do have this one poem that I read that talks about aging. And, of course, that's one of the reasons I love this poem so much when she talks about the hair going from black to white. But uh, the the story of her death is clearly a story, not factual. And that's that uh, she fell in love with this young male ferryman. And uh, when he didn't reciprocate because she was old and he was young, uh, she jumps off a cliff and commits suicide. And that uh, pretty much everyone agrees that that might have been a story in one of her poems because she uses various myths in her poems, like the story of Tithonus and the goddess Dawn. And, uh, or it could have been made up in like fifth century Athens because they had all sorts of uh, comic plays about Sappho that portrayed her as, uh, you know, just uh, sex loving, both male and female. And so it could have come up later. But uh, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense fitting with anything we know of Sappho or her remaining poetry that that would have uh, been true. It, it sounds misogynistic to most people who hear it now <laughs> that she gave up her women for this hot young man and committed suicide over it. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it was probably just a rumour spread by a man, probably. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what would you say Sappho's legacy, legacy is? Well, I mentioned that she had a strong influence on later Greek poetry, later Latin poetry, and poets and writers afterward, including now. But even beyond the poetry, there's the idea of Sappho. And so in queer studies, uh, Sappho in universities ha has been a name, but also just the idea of the queer Sappho in general. There's uh, and other things like there's a organization called Sappho for Equality that's in India that is a helpline, a help resource for women. Uh, Paramita 
Pravarti at a university in Kolkata helped found that. And she was telling me about it in a recent um, conversation that we had online in a, about how important Sappho is in India, where women are called Sapphos if they're active women writers, certainly, or even just women activists are called Sapphos. So the idea of Sappho has been important as well. And so that's part of her legacy as well. Yes, I certainly know a few lesbians who have named their cat or their dog after Sappho. <laughs> so, <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Well, I guess I would plug my book. <laughs> because it's the most precise and accurate Sappho that exists in English, and it's based on the most precise, accurate Greek texts that we have. And so I've really worked on being very accurate and precise, and other people have used my translation since then to translate it into other languages. For example, Korean is the most recent. So, uh, but I also try to capture some of that beauty and the oral sound of it to the best of my ability. So I would encourage people to read that. If they can't read the Greek, uh, read my translation. And just that everybody should read Sappho because it gives us the heartfelt feeling of love and passion now uh, and can hopefully inspire us to create our own better lives and better poetry. Ah, oh, yes, definitely. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. It's been my pure pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I've been speaking with Professor Diane Rayor about Sappho. Well, there you go, another program, and uh, do tune in next week. Right, that's great. Now I'll stop the boarding.